I'm Chelsea Bay. And I'm Shay. Together, we are Fulfillment. Fulfillment is a storytelling event featuring local community leaders and entrepreneurs who share their personal journey towards fulfillment through vocation that will challenge you to come alive. The following stories are true and no one's identity has been protected. Here's Fulfillment Stories podcast number 31. Betsy Coffia is the Director of Alumni Relations at Northwest Michigan College and is also running for state representative. She grew up in rural Kalkaska County and over the years has served as a journalist, social worker, and change maker in northern Michigan communities. Here's Betsy's story from the September 2016 event. We have one more storyteller for you tonight, and it's Betsy Coffia. She's a woman who does many things. Um, she works at NMC. She's running for state representative on her spare time. She's been a writer. She's been, I don't know how many things, but you're a change maker. That's what I know. And I'm really excited to hear your story. Um, and uh, I was told that there, the good idea slips have run out. Um, and I'm sure that some of you aren't using them. So if you have an extra one, pass it to your neighbor that wants to use one. Um, but here's Betsy. So first of all, these shoes are totally not going to work, so I'm taking them off, keeping it real. All right. How y'all doing? Good. Thank you, Shay and Chelsea, for this opportunity. Thank you for storytellers. Those were amazing and beautiful and very inspiring. So we were asked as storytellers to take a little bit of our childhood and, and share some of what we learned, maybe some of the obstacles that we faced, and paint a picture of the things that have sort of shaped us and made us who we are now. And so I, I need to preface everything else I say. Um, I can't do that without talking about religion. And so it's really important that I first acknowledge this truth that I know. Faith traditions can be beautiful, powerful, a force for good in the world. And taken to extremes, they can limit, they can cause harm. My experience as a little one uh, was of the limiting kind. My childhood was spent in a very small box. Not a physical box, but it may as well have been for how rigid the walls were. The walls of my box looked a little bit like this. What I was allowed to wear. From the time I was this small, nothing could be below my neck or above my knees, and nothing could be form-fitting. No pants, because I was a girl. Another wall of my box was the people in my life, who was allowed in my life. Um, the people in my closed religious community believed very, very strongly that we were right, that our way of doing things was the right way, and everybody who did or said or acted differently was wrong and going to hell. <laughs> and part of my duty as a little child was um, in my interactions with anybody who was other was to let them know that. A little heavy. <laughs> uh, my parents believed so strongly in this that they uh, homeschooled us to keep us away from bad influences when it was still illegal to homeschool in Michigan. So they were pretty serious. Another wall was mandatory, endless scripture memorization. I swear to God, I know half the Bible right here in this brain. And whenever, as an adult, I see Jeopardy on TV, I'm like, if they had, like, religious Jeopardy, I would crush. I would destroy. I know it. Right? Um, 
Fourth wall. I was a pastor's kid, and what that meant was it was very much impressed on me that it was my responsibility to set the example for all the other kids and make sure that I was checking all the boxes on the long list of do's and don'ts. Um, and what I learned from that was that life really was my life wasn't about me and figuring out who I was. It was about following the rules. So, starting to feel a little claustrophobic. Welcome to the box. It's a little tight in here, but the good news is we're not staying here. We're moving forward. So as a child, like any child, that was the norm. For me, I accepted it. And I wasn't, in case you're wondering, I was not one of those rebel preacher's kids who, like, sneaked behind the church and smoked a cigarette and caused trouble. No, I, was, I, was, I tried really hard to do the right thing to get it right. Um, but still, I didn't really fit in that little box. And so one day, right around my 19th birthday, my mom, who I'm pretty sure just, she sensed that. She knew that I didn't fit in that box. When nobody was looking, she lifted up the corner of the box and she sort of scooched me out into the world. And here's how she did it. She said, I found this article in the newspaper. They're looking for a reporter. Betsy, you've always loved to write. You should apply. And I was surprised because all my friends, they were already like getting married and starting to settle down and have babies. And I thought that's what I was supposed to do too. And there's nothing wrong with that. But my mom thought I could do this other different thing. And so I applied and I got the job at 19. And it turns out I was really good at it. I won Michigan Press Association awards every year, all six years I was there, sometimes multiple awards. I became an editor of a newspaper by the age of 21, and I loved it. I loved the writing, but what was even more awesome for me was that for the first time in my life, it wasn't my job to judge or know the answers and tell other people they were wrong. Uh, journalism opened my world up. It allowed me to listen, to ask questions, to learn, and then just to do my best to convey information as fairly as I could. I learned all sorts of new things. Uh, public education policy, sports, local, state, and federal government, millages, taxes, community organizations like the Conservancy and Rotary Charities and the amazing things they do for us. I was like a thirsty child. I was like a sponge, just soaking in all the knowledge, sitting there with my little skinny notebook and my pen and my long hair and my long dress. It wasn't all easy. I remember the first time I had to call a source for kind of a controversial story. I was so nervous, <laughs> staring at my phone. Uh, we still used phones then. We didn't have cell phones. <laughs> staring at the phone and like trying to get the courage up. And that was the day I realized your palms can sweat. Yeah, <laughs> I got over it. I remember uh, another tough moment, having my publisher scream at me over the phone and hang up on me because I refused to call the family of a young man who'd been murdered to get a quote uh, from them to see how they felt. He wanted a juicy front page story. He wanted to scoop the competition. I wanted to them to have some space and some respect. And I didn't do it. I wouldn't do it. And he didn't fire me, so it worked out. Early in my career, though, um, I had an experience that ultimately moved me out of journalism into the next stage in my uh, 
vocation, my journey. My editor assigned me to a court case, and I still remember walking into the courtroom, sitting on these hard wooden benches, and waiting for the proceedings to begin, watching the judge come in, watching the lawyers come in, the bailiff. And what I heard next, I can only describe it as searing my heart and my mind. This turned out to be a child sexual abuse case. And I heard the testimony, I heard the defense, and the cross-examination, and I felt, remember, I was like 19 years old. I felt so sick that this could be happening in my community. And I never really thought about it, and I never realized that so many children could be being victimized in this way. And it made me feel really uncomfortable that I was just sitting there writing about it. I wanted to do something about it more. So in all of this, I noticed somebody, the prosecuting attorney. And over time, I learned that his predecessors, they hadn't prosecuted these kinds of cases. They're ugly. They're uncomfortable. Nobody wants to hear about them. Nobody wants to think about them. And they're certainly, you're not going to win any glamorous awards for doing that work. But this guy, I watched him, and he decided, no, he wouldn't look the other way. He knew these kids didn't have a voice and that they were being horribly wronged. And he decided he would do something to bring them, bring them some justice and prevent more abuse. He knew he wouldn't get recognition for it, and he did it anyway because it was the right thing to do. I talked to him quite a bit over time, and I got to know him. He had letters from families. He knew the names of children who were survivors, and he worried about them, and he advocated for them where he could. And I remember thinking, this is the kind of person I want to be. Eventually, I chose to leave journalism because of, in large part because of his example and the impact he had and that day in that courtroom. I wanted to be a part of standing up for those whose voices aren't being heard. I wanted to work for families and children in our community. I went to Northwestern Michigan College to study social work. It's an amazing school. And I still remember a class that I took that first semester called Critical Thinking. More than that, though, I remember my professor, the late Jim Valovic. I'd like to shout out right here and just point something out. You're hearing a lot of trends of teachers and how much they impact and change people's lives. We need to do better by our teachers. I'm just going to say that right now. So Jim, he had spectacles, he had a white beard, and he had this calm, kind way about him. I immediately felt accepted and at home in his classroom, even though, frankly, I felt like a fish out of water at college at first. Among the other students, I still wore my long conservative dresses, my long hair, and I got some looks, you know. I was used to it, but I was doing this. And I remember how Jim treated me. I would speak up in his class and voice views that I'm pretty sure he found personally quite offensive those views from my box from over. But he never made me feel for one moment that he looked down on me or that he did not respect me. He heard me out, and then he gently gave a different point of view. He did this with our whole class, and, and he earned my trust. And it's a good thing, because about midway through the semester, he had a doozy of an assignment for us. 
He asked us all to think for a few minutes at the beginning of class about a really controversial political topic that we felt really strongly about. He asked us to write it on our paper. And so for me, this wasn't really difficult. My family had a few very narrow topics that informed every vote we ever took. Gay marriage and abortion. That's all you need to know. What are their positions on that, right? So, easy. I just, I wrote down abortion. No big deal. I was ready. I thought. Jim gave us some time, and then he calmly looked out at us, and he said, Now, I want you to use all the tools of critical thinking that you've learned in this class, and I want you to use your compassion and your integrity and put yourself on the exact opposite side of the issue that you chose. You will be graded on how well you put yourself in the shoes of someone who believes the opposite way of you and how well you explain their position and why they believe the way they do. Oh, my jaw dropped and my face got red and I was kind of pissed, actually. I felt like he had tricked me. And I'm pretty sure I thought for a minute about dropping the class altogether. <laughs> now, this is not unprecedented for this college student. I had done it before. I had been uh, 45 minutes into the very first day of a history class when my very vocal feminist history professor started the class by talking about white privilege and Native American genocide and how we had responsibility. And I marched out of her class halfway through, pretty sure I gave her a dirty look on the way out the door. And I went to registration, I got myself a less radical history professor. So it was still, you know, box thinking still. But you know what? I didn't drop Jim's class because he had earned my trust and he had showed me respect. And I felt I owed it to him to give it a try. So I did it. I watched videos. I read firsthand accounts. I talked to people. And I argued from the pro-choice side. And frankly, I learned a perspective I had never in my life considered or heard. I didn't realize it at the time, but that assignment and the humanity that it gave to people who I had always been told were so other profoundly impacted me. And it went a long way toward knocking down the remaining walls of that tiny box. So, what about now? <laughs> well, first of all, I've realized that absolutely nothing about my life, including my vocation, fits inside a box. And it, it, I love it. <laughs> There's so much room to grow and imagine and move and be and do. And in my professional path, I did. I went on to serve my community. I got my bachelor's degree from the university center. I went on to serve our region as a social worker for families and children, just as I set out to do. And I now have the privilege to be on staff at my college, at Northwestern Michigan College, where I learned and grew so much because of those teachers in those classrooms and because of Jim Balavik. And I get to see students every day on campus and talk to former students who, like me, had some kind of a box. It wasn't the same one, but students who come there and they, they break out and they figure out what they want to do and be. And it's an incredible thing, and it's an honor to be a part of that. 
But again, I don't really fit in much of any kind of a box, so I haven't stopped there. Jim taught me how powerful it can be to do the work to try to see different viewpoints and to reach out for common humanity with respect. And the prosecutor, remember, he taught me to strive to be courageous and to not turn away when I see injustice. I'm most fulfilled when I do my best to honor my values, those values of courage and compassion and standing up for justice. And so living my values has led me into social justice activism and even further to some place I never could have imagined going, and that is political candidacy. Now, modern politics in this country, you talk about an arena where more justice is needed and more voices need to be listened to. We are at a time of historic inequality, at a time when progress that's been hard fought over decades is being threatened. Whether you're talking about our air and the water we need to live, protecting it, whether you're talking about historic levels of child poverty and threat to our foundation of public education, rights of women, LGBT individuals, people of color, too many people are being unheard in the halls of power. And I can't look away. I feel compelled to act. I think I have something to say. I think I have something to offer. And so here I am. I'm a political candidate. The election is 46 days away. So this is kind of fun because I'm not out knocking doors tonight. This is, this is relaxing. <laughs> now, so I strongly believe that we each must find and are finding our own way to make a positive difference in the world. And yours very likely will look different than mine. But so my challenge to you is really more of an affirmation. I want to affirm and celebrate that the goodness, the creativity, the courage, and the kindness that each of you puts into the world does make a difference. So please keep on doing it. You may never know, just like Jim Valovic and that prosecutor never probably knew the impact that their actions made. But believe me, you are impacting people that you may never meet or never know. And it's really a powerful thing. Finally, I want to leave you with a quote that encourages me when I get a little afraid that I'm being Pollyanna or I'm tilting at windmills with my commitment to justice and making sure people's voices are heard. So I'm going to finish with this. This is from Howard Zinn. To be hopeful in bad times is not just foolishly romantic. It is based on the fact that human history is a history not only of cruelty, but also of compassion, sacrifice, courage, kindness. What we choose to emphasize in this complex history will determine our lives. If we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something. If we remember those times and places, and there are so many, where people have behaved magnificently, this gives us the energy to act and at least the possibility of sending this spinning top of a world in a different direction. And if we do 
act in however small a way. We don't have to wait for some grand utopian future. The future is an infinite succession of presents. And to live now as we think human beings should live in defiance of all that is bad around us is in itself a marvelous victory. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.